Jesus also told this parable. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, apart from the other worshipers, prayed thus, God, I thank you because I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I purchase. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus went on to say, the tax collector went down to his house justified, made righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Kimberly, you guys can grab a seed. You can turn to Luke 18. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, if you haven't noticed already in our time in, in Samaria and Luke's gospel, um, the way Jesus uses words is always meant to, in some ways, reveal. Like the words that Jesus uses, how he uses them, when he uses them, in what context, and what tone, and, and to whom they're addressed, they're all, it's everything he speaks, he speaks in order to reveal. He uses words that reveal the true nature of our Heavenly Father and how we are to relate to one another. He utters words that reveal the often unspoken heart of those that listen. Our hopes, our fears, our plight, our desires. And he even reveals the nature of our religion and our faith. Primarily, Jesus uses words, though, more than anything, to reveal in order to heal our blindness. Jesus uses words to remove what blinds us from seeing what is true. Remember what he said at the beginning of the gospel. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim, to speak, to use words so that there might be recovery of sight to the blind. This is what Jesus has come for. He's come to speak that we might see. There's a specific word, even if it's perhaps diluted through our overuse, for this recovery from blindness, this restoring of sight. There's a specific word that, that, that this is what it means. The word is faith. Faith. Maybe that's not what you expected to hear, but, but faith is this recovery of sight. Faith is not a wish or a hunch. It's not acting out of what might be or could be. While we often... Um, use faith quite flippantly to talk about faith in our sports teams or faith in um, our aspirations or faith in our work ethic or faith in whatever, whatever it might be, faith in the stock market, in the economy, in the systems, whatever it might be, faith in government, faith in family, faith in friends. However, somewhat flippantly we use that with just maybe a hunch of conviction. The actual term faith in our scriptures and truth is nothing less than the aptitude to see what is often unseen. Faith is the aptitude to see what is often unseen. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. Faith is the assurance. Literally, the word assurance means entitlement, but not entitlement like we use entitlement in our context, like entitled because of a contractual covenantal thing that's been signed in relationship. Because there's a covenant, because there's a contract, because there's someone who promised with penalty of breaking the promise to do something, I'm assured. So like whether that is entering into some sort of partnership or agreement or maybe even more so into a marriage, 
What assures us of our spouse's fidelity and affection and with us in through the ups and downs of life is that they entered into a covenant with us. We're entitled to what they said they would do, right? It's, again, it's not a self-centered entitlement. It's an entitlement that's based, it's an assurance that's based off of this relationship that's been entered into and stipulated. So faith is this assurance, this entitlement of things hoped for. This assurance that what we hope for in relationship to God, we get because God has promised it, because God has entered into, formally into relationship with us to bring it about. Faith is the conviction, an inner proof, an inner testimony, inner sight, something that that looks beyond just what the circumstances sees and holds steady, conviction of things, what? Not seen. That faith is an assurance of what's hoped for, what is future, because God has entered into covenant with us. It is a conviction, an inward testimony, an inward vision, an inward trust of what is often unseen. And not just unseen because it hasn't happened yet, that's what hope's for, hope's for the future. The unseen is what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on all around us, what's going on within us. To live by faith, then, is to see what is overlooked, dismissed, darkened by shadows of sin and selfishness, by slavery and systems. That is, faith, to live by faith is to see the very presence of God for, in, and through people, including ourselves. Faith is to see the very presence of God for, in, and through people, including ourselves. In today's story, Jesus once again uses words to reveal in the hope of healing, restoring sight of the unseen. It's a story of faith, of what faith sees and what a blind faith, what Peter would call in his second letter, a nearsighted faith, misses. And ironically, what this nearsighted faith keeps us from experiencing. So how do we know this story is about faith? Because maybe, maybe uh, you heard Amberly read the story and you didn't get the idea of faith <laughs> anywhere in the story. You got pride, you got humility, um, but, but faith was, seemed to be missing. So how do we know this is about seeing the unseen? Well, a couple of things. This parable follows Jesus' conclusion to another story, and a story that Dylan told for us last week. A story in which... Um, um, uh, the unseen inward reaction, uh, it, it follows the conclusion of Dylan's story, and it also encouples with um, Jesus's or the author Luke, Luke revealing to us kind of the unseen, the, the heart response of some of the people who were listening to Jesus as he told these stories. So Jesus concludes, if you look just one, a couple, couple of verses before that in verse eight, Jesus concludes his parable of persisting faith. I mean, what is, what is prayer but faith, Right? Faith that, that this conviction, this, that God will hear, that God will commune, that God is with you, that he's in you, that he's working through you, that you can talk to him, right? This persisting faith, this persevering faith that shapes and forms us in relationship to God. He concludes this story with, with, um, with this word. He says, basically, I'm the exact opposite of the unjust judge. He says, I tell you, God will give justice. That is, God will execute his core values his standards, the, the standards that come from his inner person out into the world. God will execute that. He will bring forth what is in him into the world. 
You will extend justice. You'll give justice to those chosen out of personal intention, those entered into relationship with, those who he's committed to relationship with. And he'll do so speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus, right? Will he find faith on earth? Will he find such faith? Will he, the anointed whom the chosen were ever looking for, when he finally arrives, when God finally shows up in our life, in the life around us, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith that has assurance of what's hoped for, the conviction of things unseen? Well, of course he will. At least that's the internal reaction of some of those in earshot. Verse 9. Jesus also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The key words themselves and others reveal the true nature of their faith and how it's actually a nearsighted faith. Only seeing what can be physically noticed but missing the unseen altogether. The primary focus of the story today is not pride and humility. Certainly the contrast is evident, but pride is only a shadow, a cloak that keeps us from seeing the truth of things. And the true focus is what does our faith see or fail to see? Righteousness, for example, being able to draw near to God. That's what it means to be righteous, to live in a way that you live in step with God, in the presence of God, in a way that allows you to commune with God. And nothing prohibits it. Being able to draw near to God because of your right standing, because of holiness, because you're cleansed, because you're redeemed, because you're whole, is not subjective. Nowhere in our scriptures is it subjective. It's, rather, it's objective. And trusting that one is righteous is not a bad thing. God wants you to trust that you're righteous. He wants you to trust that. He wants you to know that. God does not intend for us to meander through life ever oscillating in a fickle faith of where we stand in relation to him. God does not desire that from us. That is not maturity. That is not wholeness. That is not abundant life. That's not what he desires. Can I come near to him or not? Will he be there for me when I need him or not? To such question, the psalmist responds in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, if I am at my best, at the height of life, in a moment of transcendent worship, you are there, obviously. But if I make my bed in Sheol, if I go down to the depths of hell itself, you are there. Whether in the heights of worship or the depths of sin, there is no place he is not with me, and thus I am with him. God wants you to know that. God desires us to know that. He wants us to be in the place where we can say that with the psalmist and believe it, right? Confident conviction is a hallmark of true faith. Yet as Jesus', Jesus story reveals, true faith assurance, entitlement, is not in what is seen but is unseen. It is in the heart. So let's see if we can see it. Let's go back in the story and see if we can see what faith is and isn't. So, Luke 18, verse 10, begins. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Two men walk into the church to meet God. I mean, that's where the temple is, right? The closest we have in equivalence is this space, a time where people have gathered together. 
in order to meet God, to be with God, to seek God with others who are doing the same thing. Two men go into a temple, into a visible marker of what is true, a visible reminder of what is true, that God is with us and that we can be with him. Specifically, they walk into um, God's place at a time when the priest, it's first century Jews, right? This is, this is taking place in, in first century Jerusalem in the area of Judea. The priest, the person visibly mediating the presence of God, helping the people make sure they are prepared to be in God's presence, is making the daily atonement sacrifice. We know this because of the different things in the text and the different deals, so I won't go into all the details. But what we understand is that when Jesus is telling the story, those who have heard it would have heard when two men went to the temple to pray, that there's only a couple times a day that you go to the temple to pray. It, it, the way worship worked, especially in the first century in, in, in Jewish culture, was not the same as ours where they have just like an open room. You can come in any day you want and just kind of sit solemnly and quietly. Like to come into the presence of God, you had to be prepared you had to come in. There was certain rituals to go through, certain steps to take. It was almost always communal, almost always purposeful, but it happened multiple times during the day for you to come into the presence of God with others to seek the face and presence of God. And there was only specific times where you as a participant in this, this, this connection with God were encouraged to on your own individually pray. Most of the times it was collective, collaborative, congregational prayers, confessions, readings of scripture, things like that. So it's a little different than kind of our autonomous, independent way of thinking about worship. It's very communal, very, very, very much group oriented. But there's this specific time where it happened twice a day at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. in which the, the priest would make the atonement sacrifice, the sacrifice of a lamb in order to cover the sins of the people, and then they would burn incense. And then at, during the burn of incense was this time when it was expected that the congregants would offer up their prayers to God. This visible reminder right in front of both these men is happening. That in order for the holy to not overtake the unholy, for God to dwell with his people, life would have to be given. And this visible, visceral image of smoke lifting up from, from these little bowls that were burning that the words that we pray, though unseen, are real. And that just as this incense hits our nose, so it hits, our prayers hit the ears of God. Visible reminders of the invisible. Both men walk into this place. All the things happening in the visible, invisible reality of life with God playing out in the visible enactments of the church service, the temple service. At one particular moment, again, as the incense rises towards the heavens, these men pray. One, the scripture says in verse 10, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So it wouldn't be strange that two men go to the temple to pray. That's a normal, ordinary thing. It's a part of the, the normal, ordinary rhythm of culture, part of what would be expected of those in this time, especially Jewish people at this time, to be a part of. But one being a Pharisee and the other a tax collector is a little unexpected. These two men, to the visible eye, could hardly be more different, especially in this place. Especially in this place. One is a Pharisee. 
It's expected that he would be there. He's respected in the community, respectful in his observable behavior, and devoted to doing everything necessary to ensure his acceptance, his welcome in God's presence, and the welcome of God's presence to the people. That's where the Pharisees exist. They exist not just to, for their own individual righteousness, but they exist to call the people into righteousness so that when God comes, everybody will be prepared for God to act on their behalf. So it's expected that he would be there. Again, this, this daily prayer, not everybody in the community attends all the time, sometimes out of need, sometimes um, maybe rhythm doesn't allow it or whatever, but it was always available. And so it wouldn't be strange to see this Pharisee, especially this Pharisee, go to the temple to pray. But the other person is a tax collector. And again, maybe you know all about tax collectors. Maybe you've heard the stories um, in, in, um, of, of the little tax collector who climbed a tree and all that kind of stuff and how bad tax collectors are. Well, they're true, and the stereotypes are true, but what we don't maybe understand is that these people lived kind of in between two worlds, right? They grew up in the Jewish home, in a faith that would teach them to go to the temple to seek God, that God's for them. That they can only have a full and whole life in relationship to God, and that God is pivotal in their life. But at some point, they chose to consider working for an oppressive government to take advantage of their own people. Why did they choose that? Maybe it was simply out of greed. Maybe it was simply out of avarice. Maybe it was simply they didn't have anything and they were really smart and this was the best way to use their, their smarts to get stuff. Who knows? They have all kinds of stories. But th- what happens is now they're, they're kind of in an in-between. They're not a part of the system, not fully. They're just a cog in it. They're just used by it. The Romans just want to use them to get access to the people. And the people, on the other hand, the community, their community. Again, this is, these are small towns and villages. These are not like, it's not like there's two million people and the tax collectors are just like random people that you'll never see. It's not like the IRS that you'd have never, never seen a face, right? Everybody knows who they are because they have to physically go to them to take their money, to take their payments. Everybody knows them. And so now they're caught in between not being a part of the system and not being part of the community. I mean, what a, like, what a ripping place to be, right? I mean, how about your soul be ripped and torn in that place? Even if, by your own volition, you chose to go into this place. Can you see, like, the, how broken and devastating of a place that might be? How hard of a place that might be? To never be in a place where you're welcome? No wonder they throw lavish parties you got to fill the void somehow, right? No wonder they do extravagant things. you got to fill the void somehow, right? you got to pay people to like you if they're not going to really like you. But this tax collector, disrespected by his community, even if he was, and there's some evidence in history that there were tax collectors who tried to toe the line, tried to play in a way that that mediated the, the, the oppressive nature of the Roman government on the Jewish people. But to no avail, right? I mean, they're already traitors. They've stepped out. Even by their interaction with the Romans alone would keep them from access to the temple. They'd make them unclean. Everything about their life, even if their best intention was to try to do that profession well, they would not be accepted in their community. Couldn't be. And listen, everybody knows this guy. No tax collector walks around in his community unknown. 
he of all people would be the most ill-prepared to be in this place. Nevertheless, both men are there. Both men are there for the same reason. Both men come to commune with God, to speak with God. Both men assume that their interaction with God is vital to their lives. And both men will do what is necessary to interact with God. One will do all the things and more, as we'll observe, that his religion requires. And the other will suffer all the social scoffing and humiliation that would certainly befall him as he entered into this place. He's not welcome. The tax collector is not welcome here. The temple, especially in first century uh, Judea, is not a welcoming place for those who are not ready to enter it. And yet he enters in anyway. Both men are devout. As much of a character of Pharisees we have, there's no indication in the story that this Pharisee isn't actually truly devoted to a life of holiness. To being in a relationship with God. That's why he's here on this day. Because he's seeking God. Seeking to commune with God. Seeking to live out of that, that righteousness. The tax collector at the same time, there's nothing in the story that indicates that he's not there out of a genuine desire to know God. To be a part of something. To be included in something. The story goes, in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself apart from the other worshipers. Now, again, we sometimes read this and we think, oh, like, you know, we kind of read our context into it. Maybe he's standing at the back just praying on his own. Again, that's not how the Jewish worship works. That's not how Middle Eastern worship works. That's not how first century worship works. You worship in a community together, tightly packed into the same space, all looking in the same direction, chanting in the same direction. You're packed in, all those kind of things. It all happens communally. So to stand away from the other worshipers, there has to be a reason. And it's not generally this, this kind of self-devotion, like quiet time with the Lord kind of reason. The reason would have been this. This man would have looked at his neighbors and he would have seen that despite their genuine desire to be with God and to be able to be right with God, that most likely, because this is a midweek service, this isn't a Sabbath service, most likely something they did that day would have made them not ritually prepared to be in that space. Maybe out of ignorance. Maybe ignorantly they touched something they shouldn't touch. Maybe they weren't aware of something that they ate that they shouldn't have eaten. There's a whole list of, of rules and regulations that the Pharisees followed that would prepare you to be in this place. Maybe out of ignorance they just did something that didn't quite allow them to be truly, fully whole and holy. Or maybe out of just sheer necessity, their life didn't allow them to be that. They, they did jobs and things that were unclean. They were looked down upon, at least religiously, right? That made them ill-prepared to be in this place. But he kind of, he, he doesn't judge them for that. Like, that's just the way it is, right? Like, he's, he's, he's a little different, but everybody else, he's like, it's a midweek service. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Like, this is, this is kind of what's expected. But already you're kind of seeing a little bit of him, right? He stands apart. Because here's the deal. In the, in, in the Midrash, in the, the Pharisees' kind of handbook, it was assumed that if, even if you accidentally brushed upon one of these ignorant or out of necessity people who weren't quite clean in the temple, you inherited, you scrubbed off some of their unholiness onto you. You got blemished a little bit. And so... And because he's so devoted to being holy, he's like, I'm not even going to take the chance of rubbing up with my neighbors, rubbing elbows with my neighbors, just in case. 
just in case. I'm not going to rub up against them. I'm not going to do life with them. I'm not going to get into the worship with them because I'm devoted to being clean. And listen, it's okay. Like, I know they're not going to be perfect. I'm not expecting them, everybody to be perfect, so I can kind of stand over here to the side. We've never, none of us have ever thought that, right? About anybody? That their unholiness will rub off on us? That, like, we're not really judging. Not really. I mean, it happens. That ignorance or just out of, like, obligation, you, you can't live fully, truly, perfectly. And so, but I don't really want to get next to you because I don't want to accidentally get some of what you've got. And so, this man stands aside. But then, but then he looks around and he sees he's not the only one who's standing aside. What does it say? Where does it say the tax collector's standing? He stands apart too, right? So imagine this. He's in a room, maybe, maybe the size, maybe a little smaller, and it's packed out. Most of the congregants are close together. They're on the floor. They're, they're or, or standing and looking towards, towards, the, the, towards, the, towards the altar. Um, and he's just kind of back here. The Pharisees just kind of back here, just kind of hanging out. All of a sudden, he looks down the wall to his right, to his left, and he sees somebody else standing there. But he knows this person. He recognizes this person. He's a tax collector. He's the tax collector. Again, everybody knows this man. It's when he sees him, when he sees with his eyes that what's unseen about the Pharisee becomes seen. Right? Maybe it's acceptable to kind of stand on the outside and away from neighbors who aren't quite got it all together yet. Because he's not really judging them. He's letting them worship. He's not saying anything. He's not trying to push, push his agenda on them. But what we see in his, in his prayer is his heart. Because listen, the, t- the original language suggests that what he prays, he prays out loud. This is not a quiet prayer. This is a preaching prayer. You guys have never experienced any of those, right? Not for me, right? <laughs> You've never heard somebody pray for you, at you, right? Well, that's what this prayer is. He's praying at somebody. He's praying at the guy who's sitting right next to him just down, the, just down the, the wall from him. He says, God, I thank you because I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. Now we read that and sometimes here's what we thought, right? Okay, he's naming all the people he's not like, right? He's naming people who are, who are scoundrels, who, who take advantage of people, people who cheat on their spouse and all those kind of things, right? Yes and no. Yes, he's saying, hey, listen, I thank you, God, that I'm not living a life that like takes from people that breaks relationships, that, that, is, that, that causes all the things that you're against. Like, that's a common prayer. Listen, that's a common prayer in our scriptures. Thank you, God, that I don't, that I don't live a life where I take advantage of people, where I demean people, where I break relationships. But it's usually, thank you, Lord, for keeping me from a life that's that, right? Thank you, Lord, for leading me in a life that's not that. But this man actually uses three terms all three terms, all three terms in the original language are adjectives for tax collectors. They're extortionists. They're extortionists. They're scoundrels. 
They take from people. They, they wring out from people what is unjust. They're unjust, right? They don't bring any sort of justice. They actually perpetuate injustice. And they're adulterers. They've literally turned away from the thing that they're married to, their community, their God, to be in bed with a foreign God, a foreign community, a foreign oppressor. He doesn't just pray this random prayer. He prays a prayer thanking God that he is not his neighbor. Again, none of us have ever done that, right? None of us have looked at people on Facebook or in our neighborhoods or in our communities and prayed and thanked God that we are not them. We would never do that. But this guy does. He says, God, I thank you because I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this text. And then he says it. He doesn't just use the, 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 the adjectives. He actually says the guy, the tax collector, like this tax collector. Again, this is a prayed prayer out loud. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like this scoundrel, this refuge, this one who's turned his back on us and you. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. He prays and thanks God that his life is not like that of a rogue swindler, an adulterer. Again, he's not grateful that the Lord has kept him on a straight path. He's grateful that he's better off. He's grateful that he's not like. He's actually not grateful He's hateful towards this person. He assumes the worst of what he sees in his neighbor. He assumes the worst of what he sees in his neighbor. That's what his faith sees. That's what he sees. The worst in his neighbor. Perhaps the audacity of the spoken words revelation catches him for a moment. I mean, can you imagine yourself? Right now, think about the person who you think is a tax collector in your life. Who's betrayed you, who's offended you. Like whether they're a person you know, know, or a person that's just kind of on the periphery, maybe through social media or through whatever. Maybe somebody you work with or a family member who's, who has extorted, been unjust, like has turned their back on, has been a traitor. Imagine praying this prayer in their, in their earshot. Wouldn't you have a little bit of tinge of like, oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe that was a little too far, right? I think he does too. Because that's, that's what humans, this is how humans, even, even self-righteous humans think that to an extent. And so he prays aloud, almost as a way to justify himself, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I purchase. And in doing so, he does two things. He self-justifies and continues to condemn his neighbor. Because he says, hey, look, I really am better off, God, than these others, than this guy. I do more than the obligatory festival fast. That's it. In the scriptures, there's only a couple fasts. They're festival fasts. They're twice a week as man created. Like, and, and even in the Pharisaical like, world, twice a week was pretty extreme. Like you got to be super devoted. So he's saying, listen, my stomach backs up what my faith is, right? That I want to be holy and that this is the way to be holy. 
But not only do I fast twice a week, I also give, a, listen, listen to the words, all that I purchase. In the ESV, it says, all that I get. Where are scriptures that say you give of everything that you buy? You, you give of every, everything that you have, right? Of what you grow and produce, like what you, what, what you have some. But like he's saying, listen, I'm going beyond that. I don't just give out of what comes out of my garden or out of my flock. Like if, 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 I, if I purchase 10 chickens, I'm giving a chicken. I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? If I purchase, you know, 10 cows, I'm giving a cow. Like I'm tithing off of not just what I have on what I buy with what I have. Anybody here do that? I don't. So it's okay if, if you don't. Um, he says, my stomach and my wallet back up my devotion. But in saying that, he's also saying this. I bet this man never abstains because tax collectors throw the lavish parties. I bet this man certainly does not give of what he takes from others. I give of what I purchase. Does he give even give of what he takes? So what does the Pharisee see? And what do we see of the Pharisee? He sees his own good actions, right? There's nothing, again, condemning his devotion to wanting to be holy and be in the presence of God. And he sees, like, listen, I'm doing everything and above everything to be one who is justified to be in this place, to be a part of this community, to be a part of what God's doing in the world through this community. But he doesn't see his own heart. He sees his, his actions, his religion, his obedience, his devotion, conviction, but he doesn't see his own heart. Listen, he sees God's people in place. This is a holy place. The reason he prays this is to get this guy out of the place because it's holy. He says it out loud so that that guy will leave so that the place will again be a holy place so that God will show up and do what God is gonna do for his people. He sees God's place in his people. He sees, this is my responsibility. This is why the Pharisees came to Jesus over and over and over again to challenge him, right? Because it's their responsibility for the people. But he doesn't see the heart of God in the place for his people. He sees the people. He sees God's people. He sees God's place. But he doesn't see God's heart for his people in the place. He forgets that at that very moment, in that very place, he is in that very place where he is praying this prayer against his neighbor. He is there at a time when God is making holy what is unholy. Where life is being given so that all may enter into the presence of God. And not be destroyed. And not be condemned, including him. Again, he sees this thing that he's a part of, this mission that he's a part of, this thing, this holiness and righteous people he's a part of, but he misses God's heart in, what, in the place in the people. He sees his neighbor and all the visible ills, and even some made-up ones probably. He sees him in all of his brokenness, in all of his, all of his destructiveness, not broken, it's just destructiveness. But he doesn't see what is actually happening right in front of his face. He sees his neighbor, but he doesn't see what's happening inside of his neighbor. 
So what's happening inside of this neighbor? Verse 13. In the parable, this would have been a huge like juxtaposition, right? What would have been expected in that time and place was for the tax collector to be embarrassed until his elite left. Because that was the intention. But the tax collector, in some ways, is just ignores the prayer of the neighbor across the hall, across the room. It says, but the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Just a few feet away, standing along the back wall, is one who sees himself all too well. His life has not prepared him to enter this place with these people. If anything, his choices have made re-entry only a hope. Only a hope. Only a hope. All I can hope for is to somehow, someday, be included in this. And a humiliating hope at that. Because there's no way to enter in this space without being utterly humiliated. In fact, he's being utterly humiliated even as he sits there. So he keeps his eyes to the ground. Nevertheless, something inside of him has drawn him to this place, to God. He knows deep within that his life depends on being here in this place with these people. Something in his heart aches for this. And so perhaps unconsciously, he beats his chest. Now, it may seem like nothing to us. Or maybe we think, again, of maybe monastic um, um, history and medieval history, and, and, and we think of, of the desert fathers and the monastic priests who, this is a normal routine, but in first century, this was abnormal. And in the Jewish culture, this was super abnormal. The only people who beat, beat their chest in the midst of worship were women. And it was the women who were, the, who were taught to be the ones who lead the people of God into mourning. This was a, a feminine action, which in that time and place was, was, was something if a man did, which was derogatory, right? So this was a sign of mourning, yes, but it was a sign of mourning, a sign of heartache and break, that culturally a man doing this would have seemed like odd, off. Again, humiliating. In fact, the only time we see men doing it in Scripture would just be just, just down the road from, from this story. And Luke, Luke tells it this way, that after Jesus' death on the cross, when his body is taken down, the, you know, the, the, there's an earthquake, there's darkness, there's just this, this scene of the execution of Jesus and all the things that are happening around and in it, right? At that point, it said, all that witnessed it walked down the hill, all men and women beating their chest. It's the only other time. The only, other, the only other time in which people were so broken, so aware of their inward brokenness, that they, they stepped out of the cultural expectation of mourning was at the side of Jesus' death. And this man beats his chest. What is unseen is being seen. That his heart is broken for the sins, his sins, and the sins of his people. That's where the mourners come in Lamentations and in Jeremiah. They come not because something just devastating happens, a sickness, an illness, a death, but because sin has happened. Their sin and the sins of the people. 
The tax collector is one whose heart is broken, sick, and torn, and longs for wholeness. Like the Pharisee, his prayer comes from the heart. He prays, God, make atonement for me. Maybe your translation says, God, have mercy on me. The phrase will be used again in a few verses in Luke for a blind man who sees Jesus and cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you go into the original language, there's a slight difference between that that phrase and this phrase. Again, where is this man praying? He's praying in the midst of a gathered people who have come together to seek God's face, knowing that the only way to seek God's face is if God makes atonement, if some sort of atonement is made, a sacrifice for life is given. And so he doesn't pray for mercy, he prays for atonement, which is mercy, right? He doesn't pray just to be able to see, he prays that he might be made right and made whole. Make atonement for me. God, I am here and so are you. Cover my sins. Bind my broken bones. Remove my iniquity. Sound familiar? All the Psalms we prayed through Lent, every single Psalm we prayed through Lent had these words. Cover my sins. Remove my iniquity. Bind my broken bones. There is nothing I can do, God. Only you what you can do and you do it. That's what he's praying. His prayer is, there's nothing I can do, God. Only you can do it. Do it. So what does the tax collector see? He sees himself clearly. He's broken. He's a sinner, right? That he is not worthy of being in this space, right? By all intents and purposes. But at the same time, he sees God's welcome and willingness to do what he cannot do on his own. He sees in these visible representations of the people and of the place and of the temple that God is the one who actually does what he cannot do for himself. He sees his need, his true longing, and God's gracious generosity to fulfill both. And then Jesus speaks, comes out of the story, revealing the truth of what we see playing out in the parable. Verse 14, he says, I tell you, the tax collector went down to his house justified, made righteous rather than the other. The one mentioned first is now mentioned last. If you're following the story, it's kind of a clever little trick that Jesus uses. The first person we see is the Pharisee and then the tax collector. And now we see the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector with the faith, the assurance that God would act based on God's promises and the conviction of what is unseen, his heart broken but meant for wholeness by God, goes home justified, made righteous, an act done for him. He didn't make himself righteous. He didn't tithe on what was given. He didn't, um, on all that he bought, he didn't fast twice a week. He didn't do the normal things that were expected, but God did something for him. While the Pharisee, confident in what he can see, confident in what he can see of everything that he's done in his place within the community, misses the unseen, his own heart, and, and what God is doing in his neighbor. 
He misses his own heart and what God's doing in his neighbor. Then Jesus repeats for a second time in this Samaritan travels the phrase, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And listen, the word exalt literally means to draw close to God. It's the way it's used in scripture. Like it's not, it's not a status of, uh, in society. It's actually a, a relational status to the, to the presence of God, to the place of God, to a standing with God. It means to draw close to God. It describes being delivered to God. To be exalted by God is to be delivered to God. To be brought up by God into his place. Those who try to deliver themselves to God, who try to raise themselves to God, find themselves not quite living up. But those who see what is overlooked, dismissed, darkened by the shadows of sin and selfishness, slavery and systems, that is, the very presence of God for, in, and through people, including themselves, find themselves living eyes wide open to the kingdom of God always and everywhere. They live by faith. So will we. Will we live by faith? Will we see God's activity for us and in our neighbors? God, I hope so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the words you speak through your son are meant to give us sight, to reveal to us who you are, what you do, Father Lord, but also to show us where we are and what we do. So even in the next few moments, Father, as we sit in the words of Jesus, as Chaz prayed earlier, let your spirit give us eyes to see. Maybe we're not as blunt as the, the Pharisee, as bold to speak what our hearts are in our hearts, but Lord, if there is hatred for our neighbors in our hearts, show us. Lord, if there is assurance of what is hoped for in our own efforts and actions, show us. Father, if there is disbelief that you won't atone for our brokenness and sin, show us. And then do what you said you will do, what has already been done in Jesus. Give us sight that we might see your work in us, through us, around us. We might live by faith until what's unseen is seen with clarity in all of creation for all eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.